Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis of the beautiful game. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window with me, Johnny McFarlane. Today, as ever, I'm joined by Mr. Duncan Castle's transfer guru extraordinaire. And uh, he's proving his chops because straight away on this Your Questions Answer podcast, we have some news to break. Duncan, uh, there is a suggestion that perhaps Pep Guardiola has got his eyes on a new centre-back. Look, he's definitely got his eyes on a new centre-back. I think it's pretty clear um, his dissatisfaction with that position this season and, and what um, how much of a problem it's been for Manchester City. And I, I think it in uh, Pep Guardiola's vision, there'll be more than one new centre-back coming into Manchester City in the summer. Remember, we're talking about the last transfer window where they lost company um, against their wishes, they expected to retain the player and then he decided to go to Belgium and, and start a um, player managerial career over there. Um, Otamendi wanted to leave Manchester City. Um, he had a, a deal in place with Monaco, but Manchester City couldn't agree financial terms with Monaco for the transfer, so they decided to retain him. And then you have John Stones, who was out of favour last season for um, Pep Guardiola and has been even more significantly out of favour this season. I was just looking at his numbers this mo- this morning and he's actually only played 39% of the Premier League minutes for Manchester City this season. Just played in 11 games, um, just started 10 of those, not started any of the Champions League matches and only has one sub-appearance in uh, the Champions League, which shows you what his status is with Pep Guardiola at present, given that uh, Guardiola doesn't have his problems to seek in central defence and has been playing holding midfielders there, um, Fernandinho and Rodri, for good chunks of the season. Also been using Kyle Walker as a centre-back on certain occasions. So um, we told you before that there there was an interest from Manchester City and Ruben Gias. Um, Ruben Gias has signed a new contract at Benfica and as um, our Portuguese um, correspondent Sergio Cricinus explained to us a while ago, um, Benfica see him as a very central part of their team. So I think he is going to be difficult for Manchester City to extract from Portugal this summer. But what I can tell you is they're looking at another Portuguese speaker, um, Gabriel, a centre-back at Lille. Um, in the French League, uh, Brazilian youth international, 22 years of age, 1 meter 90, uh, left-footed, um, which is something that uh, Guardiola values in a defender. Very strong, very fast. He's been impressive for Lille in his two seasons there. Um, also coveted by a lot of other clubs in Europe. Arsenal and Everton have both been very serious in trying to acquire the player told that City have not made an offer to Lille at this stage, but they have been in contact with the players' agents and that Lille are expecting an offer from Manchester City for Gabriel in the summer should he continue to play at the level he's played through this season for them. Um, I think you can see a mark of of their expectancy in what they did this week in that they extended Gabriel's contract. Always a move uh, used by clubs such as Lille who are focused on um, the transfer market and are very clear that they have to raise money from the the young talents they secure and bring into top-level football in order to improve the quality of the squad and, and do what they did last season, which was finish second in the French League. And, uh, and qualify for the Champions League. I think the valuation for Gabriel will be a minimum of 40 to 45 million euros, but possibly more now that they've got that extended contract. And obviously, Leo will be looking to see if some of the other clubs are prepared to go head to head with each other in trying to acquire the player in the summer. And obviously, Leo will be very keen that one of those clubs that goes head-to-head will be Manchester City with um, the substantial resources they have at their disposal because of their ownership by Abu Dhabi. 
Okay, Duncan, with it being Wednesday, we've got questions from our audience, uh, but we're not going to move away from Manchester City after that news about targeting a Brazilian centre-back. So we've got Bolt from the Blue, who's asked, how big will be the City rebuild this summer? And is there a point to it with an outgoing coach if Pep does not sign an extension? Yeah, it's a good question that from uh, from a, a long term listener of the podcast, something of a something of a love and hate relationship with the podcast. I, I, I would say if you look back at his tweets about what we've uh, what we've reported on in Manchester City in particular uh, down the years, but a big fan of our title music. First person uh, to inquire. Uh, as to who had uh, composed and, and played our title music, um, which uh, came as something of a shock to me, as it, uh, that, that, <laughs> that music's always been something of a, a slow burner in in my years. Um, I remember that well, Duncan, because it took me about an hour and a half to actually find. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Bolt. Say thank you to Johnny McFarlane for um, his dedication and using an hour and a half of his work time to to get you the name <laughs> of the of that song. Um, so to answer your question, uh, it will be a big rebuild um, because that is what Pep Guardiola is demanding. We talked about this uh, on the previous podcast uh, and how Guardiola is making it clear that he needs substantial changes in the squad. He feels that the squad has got tired um, and is not as motivated to achieve as it was before. He is conscious, I think, of the difficulty um players have with continually working under his very demanding coaching style. I think he's conscious that the target that's going to be set for them to achieve in terms of winning the Premier League title back next season is probably going to be the highest ever in the sense that very few people would expect Liverpool to decline substantially over where they are this season and they are breaking all records at the moment. Guardiola wants to win the Champions League at Manchester City. He's recently been talking about how he w- people would perceive it as being a failure if he didn't win the Champions League during his, his stay there. And um, as has been the way with Guardiola since he left Barcelona, um, bringing new players in, bringing players ready to immediately perform in the team, um, immediately improve the quality he has available to him as is the solution he is proposing. Um, and you, therefore, if, if Manchester City decide to follow that solution and all the evidence suggests that that is what they are doing at present, it's going to be a big rebuild with a centre-back, at least one, as, um, as we've just discussed, probably a full-back. Um, you need a David Silva replacement, Gabriel Jesus, I think his position is in danger. Uh, I can tell you that there were, Manchester City had a substantial offer for Gabriel Jesus in the summer from a Bundesliga club, which I'm told they were prepared to accept, but Jesus refused to take that offer up. Um, so that gives you an indication of where Jesus's status was within the club last season. And I don't think he has done enough this season for them to be absolutely satisfied that he is the the answer as the backup attacker to Aguero. And it's quite noticeable the way Guardiola uses Jesus, which is against the, the weaker teams in the Premier League and always trying to get Aguero out on the pitch for the more important matches. Um, they, as we told you in the podcast, they're very keen on Adama Traore. I've been asking questions about how much it would cost to get him out of Wolves. Um, they have an ongoing problem with Leroy Zani, a story we broke on the podcast many months ago now that Zani unhappy with his conditions at Manchester City, both in terms of working with Guardiola, but also with his pay and uh, the level he was, uh, status he had with regard to his pay relative to other players, relative to what he was achieving on the field. Um, so there are lots of areas there that, require strengthening and Manchester City's pattern has been very clear in terms of how they strengthen in the transfer market, which is to spend substantial amounts of money, not any more record-breaking transfer fees, as Kaldun uh, Mubarak was very keen to point out when he was launching that trenchant defence of, uh, of Manchester City's um, financial fair play 
problems and uh, their general business in in world football and, and um, accusations, which I think are are very well substantiated, that they've inflated the transfer market with the way in which they have spent on players during the Abu Dhabi era. And, you know, the substantiation is that they have the most expensive squad in the history of the game in terms of gross spend required to put it together. Um, so you have all those elements there of, uh, of the pressure on Manchester City internally if they want to retain Pep Guardiola. Um, and... The other side of your question is what do they do, what do they do in terms of a rebuild if Guardiola doesn't sign that contract extension or doesn't remain at the club um, on on his current terms? Um, I think they have a big rebuild either way. That's the problem they 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 face for themselves because they have structured not just the squad, not just the first team, but also the academy, the entire club around Pep Guardiola. So this this is a football club that has been built to suit one man's image in a way that a football club never has been before. So whatever way they go, um, whatever decision Guardiola finally makes and at which point he decides to leave Manchester City, because he will do in the not too distant future, regardless of whether it's this summer or the summer after next, they're going to have to do a lot of restructuring work to, to turn their squad into something that will be effective under the next manager. We're going to move on to a question now from Jeffrey McCauley. He's asked, at what points are clubs allowed to discuss pre-contracts and transfers for the summer? It always seems like Dortmund have their top targets done a couple of days into the window, while Manchester United drag on the process and muddy things up for ages. Look, th- this is a question you get a lot when you do what we do on the on the podcast and report about um, transfers that are in preparation, um, the, the Gabriel one is a is a good example. Transfers that are being planned, the top clubs do this a long time in advance. And when you um, try and acquire a player of that status, and, and more importantly, a, a player of, of even higher status like a, a Mohamed Salah. Um, were he to leave Liverpool this summer and whether, you know, there's been a lot of noises about Salah wanting to play him in Spain. The natural uh, next stage for him in his career would be to go to one of Real Madrid or Barcelona. They don't do those deals by asking Liverpool first, would you be all right selling Mo Salah um, and coming to an agreement with Liverpool first over the transfer fee and then speaking to Mo Salah and his agents um, and sorting out the financial terms. The, these clubs don't get involved in these transactions without finding out first if the player is interested in coming to them. And the, the, the frequent comment you get is, how can a club have talked to a player without the permission of their um, current employers? Because that's against football regulations. And the answer is yes, it's against football regulations, but everyone does it. And, and it's... Uh, it's an accepted part of football business. There are ways of getting around it. You don't always, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all, but you don't always have to talk direct to the player himself. You can talk via friends or representatives and, uh, and try and bypass the regulations that way. Or you can just do it in secret. And if you are recruiting a player of, of that stature, and we're now talking, say Mohamed Salah was to leave Liverpool you're probably talking a 200 million euro transfer fee and uh, and perhaps a, the, a good chunk of that again in terms of his personal terms. Um, so you're getting on for 500 million euro commitments in the very top transfers these days. And obviously the people involved, the coaches in particular, want to speak um, and have some discussion with the player beforehand to, to talk about uh, their desire to play there and how they would fit into the system and, and to sell the project to them as well. So um, are clubs allowed to do this? They're not. When can they dis- discuss pre-contracts? Well, they can with players who are out of contract in the summer. So um, you have a player like Nemanja Matic who is now out of contract this summer 
with Manchester United, albeit Manchester United hold an option, a unilateral option to extend that for a further year. Nemanja Matic is now uh, allowed legally to talk to any club that wants to hire him up until the point at which Manchester United try and enforce that contract. Um, it happened with Ander Herrera last summer. Again, we were first to report that Ander Herrera had um, decided to join Paris Saint-Germain on a pre-contract. That ability to speak without um, contradicting FIFA and Premier League transfer regulations comes into place on the 1st of January um, if your contract expires at the end of the season. But even in those cases, you generally find that the conversations have gone on before the legal period is entered into. Uh, probably a good example of that, Duncan, what you're describing there is the pursuit of Cristiano Ronaldo by Juventus, uh, which we've reported on on the podcast going back you know, a couple of years um, up until the point when he made the move. These things take time. And if I think if any listeners refer back to that, that'll probably illustrate the, the point that you're making quite well there. Um, moving on to a question from Noctisball, hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, was Lampard angry? because of the January window, and will it be a busy summer at Chelsea? Um, it's not very hard to see that Frank Lampard wasn't content with the transfer business that was done um, by Chelsea, which turned out to be no business, but lots and lots of um, operations in the background and discussion over which players should come in, um, who the club wanted to recruit and who Frank Lampard wanted to recruit. And then you got this standoff at the end where nothing was done. Um, you look at some of Frank's recent press conferences and you'll get a good sense of it. Um, before the Leicester City match, he was asked about no one coming in in the January window when he finally had his first opportunity to bring players in in terms of Chelsea's transfer ban being lifted. He said, some things are not in my control. My first thought, as always, is what happens on the training pitch. It's clear that we wanted to bring players in. I certainly wanted to play to bring players in. I think I've made that pretty clear over the last few weeks, and it hasn't happened. Um, he then went on to talk about the, his argument that uh, Chelsea are now probably underdogs and outsiders to some point, he said for the Champions League qualification, um, citing that other clubs around them, um, and he mentioned Manchester United, he mentions Tottenham, and interestingly, he mentioned Sheffield United as clubs who have made significant signings in the January window, whereas he was not provided with any new players. He also went so far as to say, um, to talk about Tottenham and, and said, not only have they signed a few, but a couple of players have left, not being too crude about it, but they were coming towards the end of their contracts and weren't happy being at the club anymore. And that's sometimes as important as bringing players in, that you can change the feeling of the group if players are not willing to be there. So he's highlighting two sides of a dynamic where uh, the implication would be he was let down. He didn't get the players he wanted, and I can tell you Lampard was proposing certain players, and um, suggesting to the club that they do particular deals. And he didn't get players going out that he wanted to allow to go out um, to be replaced by the individuals he was recommending as coming in. He was also asked a further question about whether it would be, whether he would rather have players um, come in who weren't chosen by him or have no additions whatsoever. And, and he said, the latter, he'd prefer to have the squad retained as it is. So you go through those comments, and I think if you go back to what um, myself and Ian McGarry have been reporting about Chelsea's transfer business for the last few months and talking about the, the conflict between the, the two sides, I think, I think you can see there's good demonstration, good evidence that Lampard's not happy with what's going on and that Chelsea have a, a significant problem in their transfer business. And as we said in the podcast, this is no surprise. This is this is the history of Chelsea Football Club. Um, they have sacked a, a large number of managers over conflicts, over transfer business. Um, one of the, the things we flagged up about 
that their issue for January was that Chelsea were keen to make a statement signing. And one of the players that uh, the, the club hierarchy were keen on taking was uh, Jaden Sancho. And our information is that Frank Lampard was not keen on the idea of having Jaden Sancho, where you're talking about 100 million euro transfer, very significant wages coming in. He wasn't keen on that because he felt he would be shackled with Sancho as being a massive signing and his first proper signing at the club and felt it wasn't the right area of the team to strengthen with that degree of, of money. Um, and it could be spent better elsewhere and didn't want to have that inflicted. I think inflicted is a fair word upon him. Um, Wilfred Zaha is another example here. Zaha was being pushed to the club. We told you that um, Pini Zahavi was one of a number of agents who had a mandate to work with Zaha and, uh, and get him a Champions League level club and a, and a very significant pay rise. Again, our information is that Chelsea, the club, were interested in doing that deal and that Frank Lampard felt it wasn't the ideal solution for his team and the, and the money, if money was going to be spent, should be spent elsewhere. We now got the rest of the season with no additions and, and Lampard making some pretty strong statements um, in terms of his dissatisfaction with the transfer market. And um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how all of this pans out and, and where Chelsea end up in the summer if Lampard's prediction that uh, they're no longer favourites to qualify for the Champions League through their league position and certainly results have not been good for a while now proves to be correct. Moving on to a quote made by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when he was Molde manager. It was at the time of Jose Mourinho's second season where he led uh, Manchester United to second place in the Premier League. Here's what Ole had to say. Second place, yeah, we're back in the Champions League, but I don't think any of the Manchester United supporters or ex-players or players are happy with a second place, where it should be a top spot. Now, you finish that with a wee smile, Duncan, and we've got two questions on that. One from King. He said, after calling Josie's second finish not worth celebrating and inheriting the same squad, Ole is on course for the worst finish in the club's history. Why doesn't fellow club legends express the unhappiness about how badly the team is doing? Finally, why does Gary Neville keep avoiding the invitation to the show? <laughs> and the second question is from Fat Lad. He says, wonder what Ollie thinks of these words. Now, I can confirm, ladies and gentlemen, that that is not me on Twitter. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's a good question. Uh, and uh, you'd have to hope that it will be presented to... Um, Billy Gunnar Solskjaer in the in the coming days, and perhaps perhaps Gary Neville's the man to do that, given that Gary Neville was the uh, famously the man who um, asked Solskjaer how much he would like and how much how long he would like his contract to be after um, their somewhat fortunate victory over Paris Saint Germain in the Champions League that preceded his uh, full time appointment as as Manchester United manager. Um, I think I think the point is is very well made um, by uh, Trunenny, um, that he inherited the squad that finished second in the league in the previous full season. Um, he has been given uh, quite a lot of latitude by the Glazers and Ed Woodward to improve that squad as he saw fit. Um, they've spent huge amount of money on centre-back, record fee for a centre-back in Harry Maguire, record domestic fee for a fullback in Aaron Wan-Bissaka. If you go across that defence, um, uh, adding Luke Shaw, Lindelof and, and David De Gea, who's now the best paid player in the Premier League, you've got the most expensive um, first choice in inverted commas because Luke Shaw isn't always first choice. Uh, defence in the history of English football there in terms of transfer fee commitments to acquire and that, that huge salary that's gone to David De Gea. Um, so he's been allowed to reshape the squad in the fashion he wanted. He's been allowed to dump 
um, the leading goal scorer over the two previous seasons, Romelu Lukaku, sideline him, and then say he's uh, surplus to requirements and should go elsewhere. He's, he's been allowed to concentrate on fast um, counter-attack suited players. He's been allowed to change the training regime and make a great point out of how that new training regime would make the team fitter, make the team play better football, make the team more robust. Yet what we've seen is a series of soft tissue injuries Um series of, of issues with um, his more important players uh, being unavailable for good chunks of the season because of um, a combination of training regime and selection policy. Marcus Rashford being a prominent example there. What's the outcome been? Well, at present, Manchester United are seventh in the Premier League. They are below Sheffield United. Um, they have nine wins in 25 games. They've scored just 36 goals in 25 matches. And I think, I might be wrong about this, I think they still have more penalties awarded to them in the Premier League than any other team this season. They are 38 points behind the leaders. So uh, Solskjaer's complaining about a second-place finish not being worth celebrating when he will clearly not get a second-place finish. Um, And he is 38 points behind the leaders, and the leaders are Liverpool, with a third of the season still to play. Um, so it would be very interesting to have those words relayed back to Willy Gunnar Solskjaer and, and ask him to, to reassess his uh, statement about Manchester United and, and ex-players being happy with the second place um, and ask him what he thinks of some of his ex-teammates apparently being happy with his management style and his decision-making, um, despite them being... 38 points behind Liverpool with a third of the season left to play. Yeah, do you think that these guys, the likes of Neville and Keane, often portray themselves as talkers of truth to power, have been compromised by the way they've gone about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer criticism? I don't, I, I, I don't think you can say that about Roy Keane. I think Roy Keane has been um, very direct and he is, uh, he's criticised aspects of, of Solskjaer's management and, and has supported them at times. I think you can definitely say that, and we have said in the podcast that Carrie Neville, it's incredible that Willie Gunnar Solskjaer has put up those numbers um, in terms of results as a Manchester United manager. And he's on course for a 53-point season, which will be the worst in their Premier League history. He's put up those numbers, yet... As far as I'm aware, and I think I'm still right in this, Neville has not criticised a single thing that Willie Gunnar Solskjaer has done as manager of Manchester United. Not a tactical choice, not a substitution, not a choice of allowing players to leave or a choice of the players he's signed. Um, No manager is perfect. All managers make mistakes. And to to find zero to criticise of a particular manager who happens to be a friend and a former teammate, it doesn't look good. And and I think, um, you know, our, our transfer window podcast label of, of Uli Gunnar Solskjaer is the precious one. has been borne out by his, uh, his handling um, by Neville, I think by Rio Ferdinand still in that camp of not having criticised Solskjaer's management. I think Paul Scholes is still in that camp of not having criticised Solskjaer's management. If the, the latter two have, there's been very little of it and it's taken them a long time to get there. Well, following on from that, we've got a pertinent question from at United Rules 1. He said, hi, Duncan. Always enjoy listening to you. Where's the love for Kaiser Duck, United Rules 1? My question, <laughs> how long before United let Ollie go? Which other coach in the world would take the United job, which seems like a throne of nails? Some pretty, uh, pretty interesting and uh, visceral imagery there. Is it going to be another former United player who will replace him to keep the United cultural reboot going? Big question is how long before um, they decide to cut the losses on Solskjaer. Um, I think it's obvious uh, that he is not the best fit for the job. Um, I think it was obvious when he was hired. Um, you just have to look at his track record. He's a previous Molde manager. He's a failure as Cardiff City manager, getting them um, 
relegated to the Premier League. Um, there was no evidence that he would have the skills required to take on. And I like this des- description of the job, which seems like a throne of nails, because we've said in the podcast as an argument that the Manchester United manager's job is the hardest job in football at present. You, you go into a club which is now in a long period of decline. Um, you go into a club which is run by a family who are own the club, not because of an interest in football, but because of an interest in making money. And that's what they've used the club for. You go into a club where the chief executive had no experience of operating in that role before he was appointed to be chief executive of Manchester United and has clearly made mistake after mistake after mistake in the running of the club. So it's it's a tough job for anyone to take on. And Manchester United have managed to get themselves in a position where they have picked someone who's clearly not an elite level candidate to do that job because of his history with the club and because he was a, a cheap option and because he managed um, a a very impressive start in terms of results, but probably a start, and I think we pointed this out at the podcast at the time, a start where there were indications that it was somewhat deceptive, that that run of exceptional results, record-breaking run of exceptional results he put together upon arrival. Where do they go next? Do they go to another former United player? I, I don't see a former United player who has the credentials as a coach and a manager Um to be able to take on that throne of nails. Um, maybe they could go to Paul Scholes, um, who always has a you know a lot to say about how people should manage in the Premier League. But if you looked at his track record as a as a manager and how long he lasted when he did take a job, that would um, instill you with a great deal of confidence. Will they look for someone to keep the cultural reboot going? I'm, I'm very interested in that part too, because they, the club has sold this story of we're going back to basics and we're going to play attacking football and and uh, concentrate on younger players and concentrate on British players with the right attitude um, and, and a few X-factor players, as Edward Wood likes to describe them, thrown in. I don't believe the cultural reboot was a strategy that was devised um, by Woodward and by the Glazers, by the club before they appointed Solskjaer. I believe it was a strategy that was used, it was created post hoc after they'd got Solskjaer in place as a PR message to the fans to explain what they were doing to sell the story and to buy time for Solskjaer and buy time for themselves. And you can see the buying of time in this idea that they need multiple transfer windows to get back to the top, that they would need as many as three years to be competitive for the Premier League title again and properly competitive in the Champions League. That's what that story is about. And it, it's it's not a strategy that they've created and said, this is the way to go. Who's the right man for it? Uli Gunnar Solskjaer is the right man. We'll put him in place. Therefore, you would expect that they won't continue with that strategy next time around because it was designed around the man they'd appointed rather than... Um, as an answer to the, the club. They may, however, because it works as a as a PR message and they may say, well, this is cultural reboot rebooted uh, with a new manager. Um, Maurizio Pochettino would fit nicely because he's got a history of um, of playing attacking football and, and recruiting young players and improving them. So we'll, we'll go with that again. But it, whichever direction they go on, Pochettino is a very strong candidate here there are fundamental problems to be solved. But one of the big problems they need to solve is to get a higher quality manager in to make the most out of the resources that are available to him at present. Because Solskjaer clearly is not doing that. You can see that from the results. With regards to the, the situation United are in just now, this is a question from me, by the way, and not from Twitter. Um, do you get the sense that United are on a trajectory similar to that of Liverpool back in the the 2000s uh, and, the, and the late 90s after the, the last one, the, the Premier League, whereby the, the problems are so severe that it will take a long, long time for them to get back to the very top table and become the club that they were under Sir Alex Ferguson. It, this is no longer a quick fix, is it? It's not a quick fix to solve everything at the club. Um, 
I think there is a quick fix to improve matters. I think you can, you can, um, you need to bring in a sports director. You need to, if you're not going to get rid of Ed Woodward as chief executive, which is probably the coherent thing to do, because um, even in the domain which is perceived to be excellent, which is commercial revenues, Manchester United commercial revenues have flatlined for three reporting periods now, and they are warning, they've already warned the stock market of significant drop off in income for this current season. And on top of that, they're at, at severe risk of missing the Champions League, which will hurt their commercial revenues even further for um, the 2021 uh, year. But if you if you decide you have to retain Woodward, and presumably that would be because of some kind of um, devotion that the Glazers have to him, then you need to take you need to strip the footballing side away from him and get a high quality sports director in who can um, use what financial resources they have left more effectively to create a better squad um, and to change the internal running of the club. But there are problems that, as we've said many, many times and for a long time, there are problems from top to bottom in the running of the club and and there are bureaucratic issues, issues with the medical department, there's issues with a scouting system that Woodward ironically boasts as being um, one of the one of the massive improvements he's made as part of this cultural reboot, and you know, I'm looking forward to his discussion of how Edian Igalo was on a list of 850 strikers that their analysts had on their expensive computer systems and whittled down to 50 by their scouts, and then onto a list of 10 by their 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 top scouts, and then finally they made a decision that he was the the man to go for in the on the very last day of the window. They, you know, there, there is. It's so easy to find problems at Manchester United because there are so many problems at Manchester United. So does that get solved quickly? I'm not sure it can get solved quickly while the ownership remains as it is. I think I think that's a, a fundamental issue here. I think you can improve matters for sure by changing key personnel and you can and you can get the club back on a trajectory towards being competitive. And, and remember, you know, it is only the season before last where they finished second in the Premier League. That's that's kind of forgotten what they they had achieved and and the level they got to under the previous manager because it it was so far off that Manchester City season. But if you offered Manchester United a repeat of that season now, um, with an FA Cup final thrown in as they had, um, I'm sure they would they would grab it with. Um, with uh, with both hands, um, so you can improve matters. Can you get them to where Liverpool are with the ownership? I don't think you can. Will Liverpool remain where they are for an extended period of time? Interesting question. Um, it's interesting to see how Liverpool take the position of strength that they've built for themselves and uh, leverage it into something perhaps even stronger and even more impressive. Um, how they deal with uh, two seasons, one in which they win the Champions League and another in which they win the Premier League by a country mile. Uh, how the players respond to that, how Jurgen Klopp um, manages to retain the drive uh, and the focus that they've clearly had this season. That, you know, the, there are there are interesting issues about where the competition go, but at the moment the problem Manchester United have is it's not just Liverpool, it's not just Manchester City. They are in danger of being um, overtaken by Wolves. Um, Tottenham are now above them again. Arsenal, if they're able to fix their problems, should be able to get above the standard Manchester United are setting again. They're, you know, you, you even have Sheffield United as being a, a, a direct contender for. Um, a Champions League place against Manchester United at the moment, which just shows how far they have tripped up and allowed themselves to fall. I'm going to take you back to the, the point you made about Igalo, Duncan, because it ties in with a question we've got from Amateur Caddy at Amacad. He said, um, are Manchester United now not able to recruit players in the top 50, possibly 100 in the world? They just don't seem to appeal anymore as winners of trophies. Yeah, I think this is a good point as well. Um, 
I think I don't think Manchester United have realised that they've lost their status as a super club. I don't think it's got through to Edward's head yet that he can't just show the badge of the club and talk about um, Old Trafford being Disneyland and have the top, the very top players and 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 probably the second tier of players say this is the club I want to go to anymore because Liverpool have uh, equivalent financial resource now and you see players like Kylian Mbappe giving interviews talking about how much they like Liverpool as a club. You can't imagine Kylian Mbappe giving an interview or even thinking vaguely seriously about moving to Manchester United in his next move. I don't think he'll move to Liverpool, so I don't think his, his destination is Real Madrid or Barcelona, but at least he's name-checking the club. At least he admires the way they're playing football. At least he actually plays in the same competition as them at the moment. Um, I think Woodward's still in that frame of mind he had when he first took over the job and he was giving interviews talking about Manchester United's ability to do things in the transfer market that other clubs can't do and saying things like, I don't want to see players going to the, the clubs in Spain. I want us to stand out as the best club in the world. They clearly don't stand out as the best club in the world at present. They, um, they are, I, I don't think they're even second choice in England anymore. I think they're behind Manchester City and they're behind Liverpool as a choice for players to go to. And I think they have to deal with that new reality. So you have the Erling Haaland story um, and Erling Haaland clearly being identified by Solskjaer as a player he wanted and work a lot of work being done to try and make that deal happen. And good, that's Manchester United doing what they should be doing in the transfer market, except they didn't manage to secure the player. And Manchester United's version of the story is that they refused to do a deal with Mino Raiola because Mino Raiola wanted to insert a release clause in the contract of Haaland, which would allow him to move the player on in uh, two, three years' time after he'd had his chance to develop in the Premier League and be in the shop window of the Premier League. Now, let's assume that version of events is correct and the only reason why Haaland chose to go to Dortmund rather than Manchester United was that Manchester United pulled out of the deal because Mino Raiola wanted a release clause and a big commission. Strategically, what should Manchester United have done there? They should have realised their status as a club. If that player is the player they want, if that player is the one they think can make a difference, they have to act like they are Borussia Dortmund. And they're not on the same level as Borussia Dortmund in European football competitively at present. They're actually below them. They have to act like that and say, right, this is the an ability for us to acquire a young talent who will fit into, into our team and have them in our team for a certain period of time. And if it goes well, we buy out that release clause. We give him a higher salary. We convince the player that it's the right place for him to be. We convince the agent it's the right thing for him to stay longer at the club. And we retain him for a longer period of time. And that is how other clubs act in these situations. If they feel a player is of sufficient quality and can be of competitive advantage to them in the short to medium term, but there's a risk of losing them down the line. They accept that and try and make the best out of the situation. And if they have the resource to retain him for a longer period of time, they'll improve his contract. Manchester United, by their own testimony, don't seem to have got that change in their status into their head and therefore end up signing Edina Gallo a player who hasn't played for two months, who's been in China for several years, who was let go of by Watford with Watford four years ago with Watford, thinking they needed a, a higher quality of a striker on their books um, as, as a mid-table Premier League club. They end up with him instead of Haaland because of their thinking and because of their strategy, according to their own account. Okay, and finally, we've got a question here from Rod at Starsky underscore LFC. It's a very interesting question. Do you think the winter break should be permanent in the footballing calendar and properly implemented, but done so as in Germany, for example? No friendlies, replays or training apart from the injured due to recovery and regeneration. 
This is a hugely controversial area in football at the moment. I think it goes far beyond just introducing a winter break in England, um, as is being done at present for the first time. And done, I think, in a clever fashion in that they've staggered the game so they don't actually close down the Premier League over that period. It's been sort of commercially intelligent from the Premier League body to... Uh, to, to have to have the Premier League effectively carrying on but allow the, the players to have a break within it. This you know this is about football geopolitics. It's about FIFA um, pushing the Club World Cup, um, adding new fixtures into the calendar, um, filling up every summer uh, for the elite players with games. Um, not those top players not getting a rest, a proper rest at any point. Um, we're, I think football is coming to a breaking point with this and, and there's going to be a, an important shakedown in terms of who retains control of the Champions League, what FIFA do, whether they manage to grab power within the club game, which is what they're trying to do at present, to get extra resource onto their books to allow Gianni Infantino more political strength to retain his position as president of FIFA. That's, that's kind of the underlying message and dynamic of all of this. There's a lot of money involved not just from FIFA UEFA, there are private capital companies who want to get control of the major international club competition, which could end up being a European Super League, possibly even being a World Super League. There are lots of proposals around. There's money being presented on the table by Saudi Arabia, by Abu Dhabi. Um, there's big cash and big interest, big political moves at stake, and the players are getting caught in the middle of it, albeit that a, a large amount of that money will eventually end up in the players' contracts. They're being pushed and pushed and pushed in terms of the number of games they have to play. You get more injuries when you play too many games. You get a lower standard of football when you play too many games. We've just seen the winter period in England um, where they have that ridiculous schedule over Christmas and New Year, and you see the soft tissue injuries mounting up as the players are, are pushed beyond their limits, particularly the players who have been used to just one game a week, who aren't in European competition, suddenly they're asked to, to being played twice a week and you get uh, difficulties there. I think it should be a permanent fixture in the footballing calendar. I think England needs to sort out that festive season period. It's great entertainment, but that they have to um, reduce the, the velocity of games in that period. I think um, the League Cup is probably going to have to go for Premier League teams. Uh, I think the FA Cup and the replay situation is is really problematic. Um, I know it's extremely controversial because of the, the history of the tournament, but um, there, there's proper tension there. Um, and I, I think Rod's point is correct. If you do have a break, you you also have to control it in a fashion where the teams don't play football during that break. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with them going on training camps. Um, that could be something, I think the club should be allowed the decision of whether they want to go in a training camp. And they're probably a lot of them will end up taking the Liverpool approach of giving the players a holiday for one week or several days and then returning to training because the training is is valuable from a tactical perspective and for the, the quality of league going forward. But definitely we need preserved holiday periods, I think both within the domestic season and also in the summer um, for our top level players or, or the, the quality of the sport's gonna suffer. Well, the winter break has uh, an aspect that uh, fits into our donkey this week. And that is the award for the following. It's the Thrown Under a Bus Award inspired by Jurgen Klopp's decision to announce that he was leaving Liverpool's FA Cup replay to Neil Critchley immediately after losing a two-goal lead to League One Shrewsbury. Now, Duncan, there are three candidates, so I'm going to open the transfer window envelope where the names are sealed. Schrodinger's candidates at the moment, but now about to be uh, unleashed into the world. From Schrodinger's envelope. Where do you, <laughs> yeah. where, where do you, do you, get, where do you buy that? Is that WH uh, Smith that you get Schrodinger's envelopes from? <laughs> right. The first candidate is Mr. Paul Pogba, who this week has been reported as head 
is not in Manchester or currently at this club. He has time and time again thrown his fellow colleagues under the bus, not just with his performances, but with his uh, comments to the media and his general demeanour. So that is going to be my first nomination, Mr. Paul Pogba. The second nomination is Alfredo Morelos, the Rangers striker, although I don't think he is actually the one throwing anyone under a bus. He has been thrown under a bus by, well, let's say Sky at the moment, who put out a translation of an interview that Mr. Morelos did in his native Spanish tongue that was a little bit, well, more than a little bit, inaccurate. Um, It claimed in the interview via the subtitles that Alfredo Morelos was suggesting that Celtic fans had uh, issued racial abuse towards him. Uh, But this wasn't actually what Mr. Morelos had to say, uh, as we reported in the Daily Record. So I think that's a very interesting one. And finally, the last candidate is Leo Messi and Eric Abadal. This is an astonishing story for anyone that's not seen it. An argument between two titans of Barcelona, two former teammates, a schism of almost unimaginable consequences, Duncan, for the club and what might happen in the summer. Um, As it was revealed, Mr. Messi can walk away potentially for free. Um, Lionel Messi, the Argentinian superstar, obviously taking umbrage to some comments made by Eric Abidal that he perhaps felt were aimed towards him over the departure of their manager. Duncan, you tell me who is going to win this week's Donkey. Uh, well, you, you've picked some uh, some excellent candidates out of that, uh, that philosophical envelope that you've ripped up there. Um, I think, well, Paul Pogba, as you say, done it on multiple occasions. Um, I think he's, he's probably his best. Um, uh, throwing under the bus was uh, coming out after um, Manchester United matches and, and uh, telling his manager um, via the... Uh, the, the the messenger of the press that he should be playing attack 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 and uh, and trying to take on the the, the Vincent Company role of, of player manager before it had even been invented. But yes, Pogba doesn't seem to have any um, uh, hesitation in, in these matters. Um, Alfredo Morella's story is hilarious, and uh, I would urge the listeners to to read that Daily Record article where um, uh, hastily. Um, convened interview with Morelis um, was granted by Rangers Football Club to Sky and uh, and uh, the translation oddly didn't match what Morelis had actually said in the interview and uh, and has ended up deeply offending the club they're going head to head with in the, in the Scottish title race and um, uh, thrown under a bus is quite amusing given it was all started by a apparently a private detective throwing himself under Alfredo Morelis's Lamborghini car um, at the request, um, allegedly, of Alfredo Morelis's wife, who has since denied that and uh, and been supported in that denial by Morelis himself. So, yeah, appropriate. But I think the clear winner here has to be not just Messi and Abidal, but I think the whole of Barcelona who seem to be intent on throwing themselves under buses at the moment. They've just thrown Ernesto Valverde under a bus and replaced him with Kiki Setien. And, and you could argue that um, the circumstances in which Setien has come into effectively amounts to him being thrown under a bus as well. You've got Abidal blaming the players for drop-off in performance, which Messi um, points out is not acceptable and uh, Messi going on his Instagram account and talking in great detail about Abidal and saying he should name names if he's going to accuse players of uh, of damaging the Barcelona cause. So, you know, Messi throwing Eric Abidal under the bus and, and probably um, the president Bartomeu in the process. And you just, uh, the, I think the question you have, apart from um how bad can it get at Barcelona is is the bus they're throwing them under, the Inter Milan bus that famously <laughs> parked itself in Camp Nou um, on Pep Guardiola's attempt to get into a Champions League uh, final with that great club in Catalonia. A deserving winner there. I put myself up to be the man that goes to Barcelona to deliver that donkey. Um, just on this topic, Duncan, because let's get back to Neil Critchley and Jurgen Klopp. 
this needs to be explored a little further, I think. Listen, this guy has single-handedly taken Liverpool through to the next round of the FA Cup, to the fifth round. And listen, he deserves a little bit more fanfare that he's getting, that he's getting at the moment. And perhaps we can start a movement to make sure that he's properly recognised. And what are you suggesting? How do you think he should be recognised, Johnny? Well, as listen, a Liverpool, you, as a Liverpool fanatic, as, you, as a Jürgen man who Klopp, has Liverpool in his heart, what would you suggest? <laughs> Jurgen Klopp's a good guy, and I think we all know the right thing to do here would be this: Should Liverpool lift the FA Cup, he should lift it in concert with Neil Critchley, the man who got them past Shrewsbury, because let's face it, Jurgen Klopp could only get a two-two draw. Critchley was the man that got them through. He's the man that got them to that next stage, and it would only be morally right that he join Klopp on that stage and lift that cup alongside him. What do you think? Well, well, I, this this reminds me of a of a quote from Jurgen. Um, he said, "I think ahead of the uh, his first Champions League final with." Liverpool, he said, I have this helping syndrome. I really care about people. So I would imagine this idea would appeal greatly to Jurgen Klopp and he, and he might even want to allow Neil Critchley to have hands on the trophy before he does. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a great idea and um, I think the transfer window's um, completely behind this. Um, after, after Critchley survived being thrown under the bus um, with Klopp immediately announcing um, after that 2-2 draw that he didn't want to have anything to do with working at that game and was going off on holiday and leaving it to the under-23s who got through um, with uh, a little bit of help from VAR at Anfield last night, um, stopping Shrewsbury from scoring goal and highlighting one of the issues, the many issues that um, there are with VAR in that um, you, it only appears in the FA Cup um, when it's a Premier League team against, for example, a League One team, uh, when the Premier League team have home advantage. And as we discussed um, in Monday's podcast, there's a real question mark about VAR having home bias uh, involved in it just by the nature of the process. I think it's been shown that uh, the, the Shrewsbury goal was marginally offside in this case, but it's one of those marginal decisions that have frustrated a lot of people about VAR and certainly you question the competition's integrity when um, a system like that's only in place for home in home stadiums of the Premier League clubs who have it normally and it's not in place for all the matches um, for example from the third round onwards. Well Jürgen we know you're listening make it happen it's the right thing to do it's the moral thing to do so with that Duncan we're going to sign off on this the thinking fans football podcast for another episode you're going to be back on Friday I'm not going to be here but you're going to have a very special guest are you prepared to illuminate the listeners I I'll just tantalize them for a bit and and say it's going to be a very interesting podcast I'm looking forward to the conversation with them with our guest on Friday Fantastic. And I'm going to be looking forward to it too. I'm going to be sitting with a, a beer and a nice warm bath, having some Kenny G flowing through the house. And then when it's time, the transfer window shall transcend onto my speakers and allow me to relax even further into my sensational day off. So I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. Is that too Just much information? I think that that's way too much information. Just promise the listeners that you will not live stream that event. <laughs> From the man who gave you Nigel Farage in the nude, he now gives you Johnny McFarlane in the bath. Probably too much for any listener to comprehend. So I'm going to swiftly move on to remind you about our social media channels. Obviously, you know about Twitter. You know you can get me at Johnny R. McFarlane. You know you can get Duncan Castles at Duncan Castles, but we also have a couple of other platforms that maybe we haven't publicized quite as much. Instagram, at Duncan.Castles, if you want to hear what Donkey's got to say, and if you want to hear about the Transfer Podcast, we have one there too, at Transfer Podcast. We're also on Facebook, at Transfer Podcast. There is a theme running here, guys. There's no doubt about it. We're not creative. 
Um, but the point is, there is debate on every social media channels relating to this podcast and the issues that we bring up. So whatever you use, get on there, follow us, and continue the conversation. Also, and listen, we know our listeners love this podcast. We love you guys too. If you want to show us how much you enjoy it, please go onto iTunes and give us a five-star review as that gets the podcast to as many listeners as possible, allows us to bring you even more fantastic content. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey.